We're going to pick it up in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. We're going to read verses 18, 19, and 20. But I'd encourage you to keep your scriptures open as we're going to be going back all the way uh, into the earlier verses and the earlier chapters of Micah this morning, uh, beginning at Micah 6, verse 9 as well. But for our scripture reading, it'll be Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us and will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. As far as the reading of God's word, let's again bow in prayer. Our Father, Lord in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you will bless it upon us. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word, that it may be done to your honor and glory. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. Amen. As I mentioned a few moments ago, we come to the end of our study this morning of uh, the book of Micah, I think this is uh, the fifth sermon we've had on it. Uh, next Lord's Day, the Lord willing, we'll begin a series on the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and go through that carefully as we reflect upon the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me also say it's been a great encouragement throughout the summer to see our Sunday evening worship services. Uh, the number of folks who have been consistently attending has indeed been a blessing. But let me just underscore, uh, tonight I, I, we will be dealing with an article out of the Belgic Confession that I think is, is perhaps one of the most needed articles in our day and in our age. And uh, I would encourage you as visitors, as guests, as members uh, to be here this evening if at all possible. But this morning we're here in, in Micah chapter 7. Now just a couple of notes of, of introduction. There's an interesting little play on words going on as we open the verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? Now the interesting play on words is this. That's the meaning of Micah's name. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Who is like Jehovah. So here we come to the end of the book. We begin at the, at the start of the book by identifying the author. And now when we come to the close of the book, he doesn't, as it were, introduce himself as Micah again, but he uses his name as, as this way of introducing the climax of this book. And so that's what begins this section. He, he's, he's answering the question, 
Who is like Jehovah? Out of his own life, out of his own existence. Remember I told you as well, uh, I, we see a lot of ups and downs in this book. There, there are some very hard and difficult passages. Uh, not in terms of understanding, but in terms of, of having for the people of Judah to deal with. Because God is calling their sins into judgment. But there are also these beautiful, wonderful passages in Micah that show forth God's grace and mercy and love. There's none like it but these last three verses as well of Micah chapter 7. I, I have the picture in my mind of Micah leaving Morasheth Gath, his hometown, and walking towards Jerusalem. And as he walks towards Jerusalem, he encounters those valleys and those hills. But now, as it were, as he turns the corner and faces Jerusalem and begins that ascent to Jerusalem with the temple sitting there as the main focus of that city, that Micah is now being given by the Lord the real message of what Jerusalem and what the temple is all about. Who is like Jehovah? Now, actually, Micah has been dealing with that since chapter 6, verse 16. This is kind of where, or chapter 6, verse 9, this is kind of where this whole section begins. And so this morning, I want to look with you from chapter 6, verse 9, through the end of the book then, at three things that Micah is pointing out as he closes this prophecy. Three things about the Lord, answering the question, who is like Jehovah? And the idea is, there is none. This, this isn't Micah raising the question because it's a real question. It, it's not like there's, well, are there competitors? Are there other ones who could take the title from God? Are there other gods who could be as majestic? Now, he's not asking it in that form. In a sense, it's a very rhetorical question. There is none like the Lord. There is no one like the Lord our God. There is no one like Jehovah. No one like the Lord. None. There is no one like the Lord, first of all, in terms of judgment. As we go back to chapter 6, verse 9. Micah begins unfolding that which the Lord knows. Just turn back there. Micah chapter 6 verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. And the scant measure that is a curse. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights. It's interesting that what the Lord is looking at, it's the discerning eye of the Lord. It is that all-seeing eye of the Lord holding men accountable. And as the Lord looks into Judah, he sees not only their outward activities, he sees that which is hidden as well. He sees the bag of coin. 
He knows the deceit. He knows the trickery. He knows the dishonest weights and measures that have been used, particularly against the poor. It is the Lord peering in, not only seeing the outward, but seeing the inward, seeing the heart, knowing the mind. The Lord, there is none like the Lord in terms of judgment. There is none like the Lord who knows the business dealings, the fraudulent dealings that were going on. There is none who knows the words. Verse 12, your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speaks lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. How does the Lord know that? Well, he hears the words, but the Lord also discerns that which is the truth. You, you, you can't compare this to any human judge. No human judge can know 100% for sure. But the Lord can. There is no other being that can know that which the Lord knows. He can discern our sins. When you go to chapter 6 verse 16... For you have kept the statutes of Omrah and all the works of the house of Ahab. You have walked in their consuls. He knows their worship. See, Omri is the first who begins Israel down the pathway of the Baal worship. And it is Ahab who, who solidifies it with his wife Jezebel. He knows their hearts. He knows that they're not truly worshiping him. Oh, there may be outward signs. They may be going through motions. But they are not of the heart. They are not of the core of who they are. And the Lord has discerned that. There is no one like the Lord who knows. And there is no one like the Lord who can then bring about righteous judgment. It is the Lord who can righteously judge mankind because of their sin. He can judge the individual, he can judge the nation, he can judge the world. The Lord is the one who can say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none that is righteous, no, not one, because the Lord knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He knows our wills. He knows our passions. He knows. And because of that, he can come and execute judgment. Justice, true justice, not the blind justice of the society where it was whoever paid the most in the bribe got the justice. This is the true justice. So in chapter 6, verse 13, he speaks about withholding the satisfaction that ought to come. Good things are in your lives, but you're not satisfied by them. You have blessings that are coming from me, but you don't get your fill of them. They don't satisfy. You know, it's interesting, is it not, for us living here in the United States to think about all that we have. All the food, all the beverages, all the luxuries we enjoy and compare them to folks in the third world. And my guess is we complain more. We have an abundance, but we're never satisfied. The poor, 
They don't even think of anything at all in a third world country of walking for five hours just to get their firewood. That's life. They don't, they don't complain. That's just life. If we have to walk 30 steps to turn the thermostat, we complain so we come up with devices on our phones so we don't even have to do that. We come up with devices so we can be at work and change the drapes in our houses. And then we complain if one day they didn't work. Oh, man, those things, what's the matter with them? We have all this abundance, but we're never satisfied. It is as if the Lord puts upon individuals, nations, a spirit of discontent. That's what God is saying I do. And I execute this righteously because I see the sin of the nation. Doesn't necessarily mean everybody who is involved is involved in that sin, but the nation deals with it. 7 verse 2. The whole idea of that miscarriage of justice. The godly have perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. That's the society. It's living in a society in which there is no justice, in which there is only violence and violence and violence over and over and over again. How many people was it that was shot in Chicago a couple of weekends ago? One city, one town was in the 30s, I believe. You deal with the nation of violence. God says, that Judah comes under my judgment. But it's not only that. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother-in-law. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own house. God says, part of my judgment is going to be to you, Judah. I'm going to break down the very core, the very fabric of society, your family. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. God's judgment comes as he breaks down the morality of a nation, as he breaks down the leadership of a nation, as he breaks down the family structure of a nation. That is the judgment of God upon the nation of Judah. And we would do well, would we not, to look in our own hearts, at our own lives, and to see the sin. That is so prevalent, not only in our nation, but in our own hearts. That's one of the things we are called to do as we come to this table. We're come, we come to this table thinking about and reflecting on, as we will next Lord's Day, reflecting upon our sin, reflecting upon the cost, reflecting upon God's judgment, reflecting upon the fact that we do not come thinking of ourselves as holy and pure and so wonderful in and of ourselves. We see our own sinfulness. Notice chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me. 
for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Woe is me. I recognize God's legitimate right to judge. And I fall under that judgment of God. There is no one like the Lord. There is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like Jehovah. When it comes to the judgment that he knows and executes. Secondly, there is no one like Jehovah in terms of caring. In terms of his caring. Starting at verse 8 of chapter 7, Micah begins to detail how it is that the Lord has delivered his people. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. See, even here, even in this dark place, even under this judgment of God, Micah sees the Lord, Yahweh, caring for his people. He delivers his people. The believer knows this. Micah knows this. He thinks, even at this point in stage, he could reflect back upon the Old Testament history. He could think of the Exodus, how God's people are delivered by the hand of the Lord. He could think of the conquest under Joshua, how many times the Lord steps in and delivers his people. Or the repeated refrain that we're going to do in Thursday morning Bible study that begins in the book of Judges. Their sin, they cry out for mercy and God delivers. God always provides that deliverer. Always provides the deliverer. God delivers his people. Or we could see it in the mouth and in the life of David. Delivers me from the hand of the bear. Delivers me from the paw of the lion. He delivers me from my enemies. He is my light. He is my joy. He is my salvation. He is my refuge. He is my strong tower. The Lord delivers. But I want you to know this deliverance is based upon chapter 7, verse 7. God delivers, yes. But he delivers those, follow along verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, God delivers, yes, but God delivers who? Those who look to him and those who wait for him. In other words, those who put their faith in him. Who did God deliver in the Exodus? Those who put their faith, the blood upon the doorpost. Those who waited for the Lord, they didn't leave their house until that angel of death had passed over. They waited for the Lord. Who is it that that God delivers in the book of Judges? Those who just sit there in their sin? No, those who cry out for mercy. Those who look to him. When is it that the Lord delivers David? When he cries out to the Lord. This is who the Lord delivers. This is what. Micah is urging the people of Judah to do. Look to the Lord. 
Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. Look to him. Wait for him. Because you see, there's political things that are going on in the background. There is the rise, you see, of the Babylonian Empire that is soon going to come against these people. Are they going to wait for the Lord to deliver? Are they going to trust the Lord? No, oftentimes what we're going to see these kings do is to try to make alliances, not with the Lord who delivers, they're going to try to make alliances with Egypt or with other nations because they're not willing to wait for the Lord. See, this is a call for God's people to place their hope and trust in the one who delivers. And once again, as we think about the table, is that not true? Yes, we come under the judgment of God, rightly so. Our sin deserves God's eternal damnation. But God delivers. God provides. Not for just for those who come and eat and don't reflect upon what all of this is about. Those who look to him in faith, those who wait upon him, these are who the Lord delivers through the blood of his son. But Micah also picks up another theme under this idea of caring. God, there is no one like Yahweh who cares for his people. Because time and time and time again, Yahweh comes and he delivers his people. But Yahweh also shepherds his people. Pick it up, if you would, at 7, verse 14. 7, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Shepherd your people. See, there is no one like Yahweh who shepherds. See, you can ask the Muslim that question. Does your God shepherd you? Is that the picture that a Muslim has of Allah? Not at all. Not at all. Who is like Yahweh? shepherds his people. See, and you have to go back then to all the imagery of which we sang about and which David wrote about in Psalm 23. He leads, he guides, he protects. He takes his staff. And with that staff, it is your rod and your staff that lead us and guide us. It is that shepherd who watches over his flock his flock, his people. The picture of John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. I'm not the hireling who deserts when problems come. I am the one who stays, who delivers, who guards, protects. I shepherd you. See, and I see Micah making his way to Jerusalem. Walking through a valley and understanding the judgment of God. 
then he begins the ascent. begins to think about the deliverance of God and he thinks about Zion, he thinks about Jerusalem, he thinks about its other name, the city of David, and he reflects upon the fact that the Lord is my shepherd. All this given to him by the Spirit. And then he comes to Jerusalem itself. Who is like Yahweh, who is like the Lord our God, not only in terms of his judgment, not only in terms of his care, but who is like our God when it comes to forgiveness? Pick it up with me at verse 18 again. Who is like you, pardoning iniquity? Here is the confession of the humbled sinner who recognizes the great deliverance of God. Here is the believer who comes to the table next Lord's Day, having thought and recognized and confessed his sin, who understands the deliverance that is given to him in and through Jesus Christ, but recognizing the result of that is the glorious deliverance of forgiveness. God who pardons. That word in the Hebrew, that idea of to pardon, means to lift off. To pardon means that God lifts off our sin. That burden that we bear, that responsibility that is ours, the judgment that weighs upon us, the uncleanliness that covers us and fills us, God pardons. He lifts off. The other word meaning is he carries away. See, there is a picture here going on. That which is happening in pardoning iniquity is that which took place on the day of atonement. On that great day of forgiveness for the people of Israel. There at the tabernacle and then at the temple are presented two goats. The priest confesses the sins of the people upon the heads of the goats. The one goat is then taken and offered as a sacrifice. The other goat, Aziel, the scapegoat, is taken, is carried away, is taken away into the wilderness to be left, to be Raised by no one. To be on its own. Why? Because it was picturing for us the fact that Christ not only suffers and dies to pay for our sins, but those sins are carried away and he remembers them no more. Who is like the Lord our God who pardons iniquity? Who does this? Everybody else, every other God requires something of us. God. Pardons out of his own grace, out of his own love. Who is like Yahweh? This one that we have entered into a covenant of blood with through Jesus Christ. Who is like him? Who carries our sins away. 
and remembers them no more. They are gone. Out of sight, out of mind. Secondly, not only does he pardon, he passes over transgression. Verse 18. He pardons iniquity and passes over transgression. Now that's an interesting term, isn't it? Passover. What are we thinking about? Oh, obviously we're back at the Exodus, right? Where we had to take the blood of the lamb and we had to put it upon our doorposts and door frames. And all those who did so as an act of faith were what? Excluded. They were passed over. The angel of death that comes upon Egypt sees the blood upon the doorpost. And he passes over. All that the blood of Christ is covering are passed over in terms of God's judgment. Is the blood of Christ upon the doorpost of your life? My question is not, are you here this morning? That isn't what I asked. My question was, is the blood of Christ on the doorpost of your life? Of you by faith, by God's gift, acknowledged your sin and looked to Christ and Christ alone for your forgiveness. And you might say, yes, then my question is, then why aren't you a member of his church? Because that's the responsibility. To be a part of that covenant community that is let out. God passes over. Who is like the Lord our God? Or thirdly, as we continue on, he is the one who, look at verse 19, cast all our sons into the depths of the sea. He throws them into the abyss. They are gone. This is what we read in the book of Revelation is that which will happen to Satan and all those who are the followers of him. He casts them into the abyss. That's what God does with our sins. He casts them. He, he doesn't get them back. The pitcher into the depths of the sea. The pitcher is this. Think, think about this one. You're on a cruise liner. You're somewhere in the Atlantic, Caribbean, Pacific. You take and write down. I know you can't do this, but just bear with the illustration. You write down all the sins that you have ever committed. You take it, you wrap it around a rock. Then you take aluminum foil and wrap it around the papers. You seal it. And you take that rock and you throw it into the sea. Into the middle of the ocean. They're gone. They're gone. We had an episode this summer when my son-in-law, we were, he, he, was, he was out on the boat and somehow or another there was some miscommunication and there went his pretty expensive sunglasses off the side of the boat into the water. We can't even find them in a 188-acre lake that's no more than 30 feet deep. 
What does God do with our sin? He casts them into the sea. If there is any doubt, if there is any doubt in your heart that God is still holding your sins against you, underscore that verse. He casts them into the sea. God does not hold our sins against us. When we come to that table next Lord's Day, we recognize our sin. We recognize humbly before God that we are unworthy sinners and we look in faith to his deliverance in and through our shepherd, Jesus Christ. And when we eat and when we drink in faith, here is the blessing. We experience the glorious hope. Not the reality of, because that's already taken place. But the glorious hope and the beautiful reminder that our sin is pardoned. That our transgressions are passed over. That our iniquities are cast into the sea. But there is one more. There is just one more. It's like the richness is just flowing from the Spirit at this point to the pen of Micah. Verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. Steadfast love. No change, no correction mid-course, never altered, never diverted. Huh. We've lived with that this summer, right? All those diversions we have, every road we go down, it seems like we've got to take a detour somewhere, right? We, we get, turn here, turn there. I don't know how long 10-mile road to Rockford has been closed, but it seems like for years. Now they're not even working anymore. No detours with the love of God. It's never diverted. It's always steadfast. It's always, 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 always coming. Oh, love of God, how strong and true, even, even in the dark cloud days, even in the hard days, even in the difficult days, even in the troublesome days. Oh, love of God, how strong and true, steadfast and always new. That's the blessing of hope and of promise that comes to us when we come to this table. We eat and drink in faith looking to Christ. And God's people say,